1: Chumba. No purchase necessary. Prohibited by law. 18 plus Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell.
4: Stacey Castor was willing to take lives in exchange for financial gains, but when her plans started to fall apart, she decided to take one more person down and make them a scapegoat. This is Monsters. Stacy Daniels was born on July 24, 1967, in Weedsport, New York, to Gerald and Judith Daniels. Weedsport was a small town about 20 miles or 32 kilometers west of Syracuse. It was there that Gerald worked as a car salesman, and Judith was a stay at home mom. Stacy had one sister, Darcy, and one brother, Jamie. In 1985, Stacy was a senior at Weedsport Junior Senior High School when she met a man named Michael Wallace. Mike was born on September 16, 1961, in Auburn, New York, a 15 minute drive south of Weedsport. It was in high school there that Mike had met his first wife, Nancy, who happened to be Stacy's third cousin. Nancy said that her and Stacy didn't know each other well and didn't hang out. It also wasn't through Nancy that Stacy met Mike. Nancy was pregnant with another man's baby when she and Mike got married at the end of high school. After Nancy gave birth to a daughter, Renee, Her and Mike went on to have another son together, James. Like many relationships that start when the couple are young, the marriage became strained. Mike was in and out of jail for drinking and driving, and Nancy said that he would be abusive to her. The couple divorced in 1984. Not long after, Mike was introduced to Stacy. Stacy was 17 years old, and Mike was 24. He worked at McQuay International, which manufactured HVAC and building management equipment. The couple dated for a few years, but when Stacy was 19 years old, she and her mother got into a car accident. Though neither were seriously injured, Stacy discovered that she was pregnant. When Mike found out about the pregnancy, he was not interested in starting a family with Stacy, and the couple broke up. Ashley Wallace was born in 1988, and for a few months, it was just mother and daughter. Eventually, Stacy won Mike back, and they planned to get married. Stacy knew Nancy and the two got along just fine, so there were no problems with Mike maintaining a relationship with his first kids. They would sometimes spend Christmas together, Mike, Stacy, Nancy, and all three kids. Nancy would say in a later interview that, where Mike had been controlling and abusive in their relationship, Stacy seemed to be the one in charge of their relationship. That didn't mean Mike was a perfect husband, though. He still liked to party and he had a problem with drugs and alcohol for a good portion of his life. In 1991, Mike and Stacy had their second daughter, Bree. From the minute Bree was born, she was daddy's little angel, and his entire life revolved around her. This would be great, except that it was a stark contrast to his relationship with Ashley, mainly because he didn't have a relationship with Ashley. Nobody knows why. Did he think Ashley wasn't his daughter? Was he bitter because she came along before he was ready to have more kids? There was no way to know, but it was clear that Bree was Mike's favorite. During this time, Mike worked as a mechanic and Stacy worked as an ambulance dispatcher. They worked different shifts, which meant they didn't see each other much, but there was always someone home for the kids. Near the end of 1999, Stacy had told a friend that she wanted to divorce Mike. She said that she didn't want to ruin the holidays, so she was going to contact a lawyer after the new year. Not long after that, though, Mike got sick and doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong. Mike told the doctor that he felt drunk even when he hadn't been drinking, and he was always dizzy. His vitals showed no signs of serious illness, so he stayed home and tried to wait out the sickness. At the beginning of January of 2000, Mike was not getting better and he was ready to go to the hospital, but he never ended up making it. On January 11th, Ashley had come home from school and saw her father laying on the couch. She said it looked like he was making funny faces, then he put his arm up in the air, brought it out to the side, and then dropped it to the floor. Ashley was only 12 years old at the time, and she didn't know what was going on. It was time for her to pick up Bree from school, so she left the house. Stacy had come home while Ashley was gone and found Mike unresponsive on the couch. She called 911, and by the time Ashley returned home with Bree, there were ambulances there. The girls were ushered off to the neighbor's house, where they stayed until their grandmother came over and informed them that their father had died. Doctors assumed that Mike had a heart attack. Based on his history of drug and alcohol abuse, it seemed like the most logical answer for a 39-year-old man to suddenly die. Since Mike's death wasn't considered suspicious, an autopsy wasn't required, but Stacy could have requested one. She didn't. Other family members encouraged her to reconsider to confirm what had actually killed him and to find out if it was due to something genetic that might affect the girls later in life. Stacy was firm that there would be no autopsy. Ashley blamed herself for her father's death. She always wondered what would have happened if she called 911 right then. Though people told her she was only 12 and she didn't know what was happening, the guilt remained for years. It would be 17 years before someone else would blame her for Mike's death. Mike had a small insurance policy which paid out just under $55,000 to Stacy. She used the money to pay funeral expenses, pay off some bills, and she took her daughters on a trip to Disney World. It was pretty quickly that the family of three got back to normal and moved on with their lives. The family dynamic was shaken up a few years later when Stacy started dating a man named David Castor. David Castor was born on June 12, 1957 in Syracuse, New York, to Philip and Joyce Castor. He was the third of six children. David rode the bus to middle school with a girl named Janice, who he would go on to marry in 1976. Janice's father worked for Liverpool Heating, which he purchased in 1978 when the owner retired. When he filled out the paperwork, he listed David as the co-owner. Janice began working in the office and the entire family kept the business going. The couple had their only child together, David Jr., on October 3, 1978. Though David could be a little controlling, Janice said in an interview that she was happy with their relationship. It was in 1987 that David had an accident that would change everything. The casters were outdoorsy people, to say the least. Each family member had their own four-wheeler and snowmobile. They had campers and dirt bikes. Janice didn't have her own dirt bike, though, as she preferred riding on the back of David's bike. She said she had trouble with anything she needed to shift. When her husband bought her her own bike in early 1987, Janice tried to learn to ride it, but she had trouble keeping her balance, and after having a minor accident where she laid the bike down, she gave up. David was planning to sell the bike, so he took it out for a test drive to make sure there was no major damage. Janice watched as David rode the Husqvarna across the street into a field. With Janice and David Jr. watching from the front of the house, David and various bike parts flew into the air. Janice ran into the field where David lay motionless, blood coming out of his mouth. David was still alive thanks to the helmet he was wearing, but doctors said he sustained a concussion and a deep cerebral contusion. When he first woke up, he was combative and had to be restrained to the bed. He had lost almost all of his memory, and the doctors said he might even have to relearn how to do everything. After a few weeks in the hospital, his memory improved enough for him to return home. Eventually, all of his memory came back, but Janice said he was never the same. He had lost impulse control, and his verbal abuse became worse. He would just blurt out anything that came to his mind, no matter how hurtful. David Jr. started feeling the same controlling behavior from his father and left home at 16 years old. Once he finished high school, he enlisted in the United States Army. Soon after, Janice's father retired from the HVAC business and sold his share to David. They moved out of the trailer they had purchased when they first got married and moved into a house on Wetzel Drive in Liverpool, New York, just north of Syracuse. In January of 2000, Janice finally got up the nerve to leave David for good. David begged her not to go, but she wouldn't reconsider. David began drinking heavily and was eventually caught driving under the influence. He had put the business in jeopardy with his destructive behavior and Janice's father helped David get the business back on track. Janice went to a woman's shelter where she moved to staying with friends and then up to getting a job and her own apartment. Eventually, the divorce was final on August 31st, 2001. David did not like being alone. He would meet a woman, they would start dating, he would make them the office manager of the business, he'd ask her to marry him, she'd say no, and they'd break up. This happened twice before Stacy, who started dating him, became his office manager, and when he asked her to marry him, she said yes. In hindsight, it was no surprise that Stacy would be anxious to marry David. Stacy was struggling to raise two girls on her own. The insurance wasn't enough to last that long, and David had a lot of assets. He owned a home, a business, plus four-wheelers, dirt bikes, and snowmobiles. David and Stacy were married on August 16, 2003. She and her daughters moved into his home on Wetzel Road. Ashley said in interviews that she wasn't a fan of David when they began living together. She said he had a lot of rules and he wanted them to obey without question, but they took after their mother, who questioned everything. Stacy's mother, Judy, said that Stacy was a very headstrong kid who would never just take no for an answer. She always needed to know why, and saying, because I said so, was not a valid reason. Stacy needed to know exactly why, and it wasn't only when she was being told no. Judy said Stacy asked why about everything and eventually they made a rule where she was only allowed to ask why three times a day. So David would give them a command and expect them to immediately comply, but he was faced with a couple of independent young women who just questioned his authority. David and Stacy's second anniversary had happened a few days prior and David was eager to celebrate. He told Stacy that he wanted to take a vacation, but he didn't want to bring Ashley or Bree. According to Stacy, it was a last-minute decision and the problem was that Ashley had to work and she didn't feel comfortable having Bree home by herself during that time. Stacy claimed that this led to a seven-hour argument that ended with David locking himself in the bedroom and her falling asleep on the couch. Later that night, Stacy went into the garage to smoke a cigarette and David met her there where they continued arguing. She specifically told the detective that took her statement, Detective Diane Lashinsky, that David had a cup of Diet Pepsi in his hand, and she was afraid he was going to hurt himself, so she asked for a drink, but he wouldn't let her have one. He said, quote, go get your own, end quote. This is Stacy trying to set the situation up to look like a suicide. She makes sure authorities know he was depressed about his father recently dying. He may have had something in his cup, and he made statements like, quote, If you leave, you'll be sorry. End quote. These statements will come up to bite her in the ass later. She told the detective that after their argument, he guzzled a bottle of Southern Comfort and spent the next two days vomiting. She continued to try to keep him hydrated by bringing him cranberry juice and water. On Saturday, David collapsed on the bedroom floor, and Stacy called a friend, Michael Coleman, and asked him to come over and help her get him back in bed. Michael would tell detectives that David was so out of it that he didn't even recognize him even though they had known each other for years. He also told them that he didn't smell any alcohol on David. Stacy said that the last time she saw David alive was on Sunday morning at about 5 a.m. She heard him throwing up, and when she opened the door, he yelled at her to leave him alone. Allegedly, he told her to take the kids and leave because it was his house. He bought it before he even knew her. On Monday, August 22, 2005, Stacy called 911 from their business office to report that her husband had been locked in their bedroom for the last few days and wasn't answering his phone. He also hadn't shown up for work that morning. After giving her address to the operator, she explained that David had been acting strange. She told the operator, quote, "'Friday night, we were arguing, and he told me and my kids to get out. And then five minutes later, he said if I left, he would make me sorry, and that I would be sorry if I ever left him.'" Stacy explained that she wasn't at the house, she was calling from their office. She claimed that she had been calling him all day with no answer, and that worried her. She agreed to meet a deputy at her house and headed home. When the deputy arrived on the scene, he reported seeing Stacy sitting in a lawn chair outside of the house, smoking a cigarette, and he reported that her body language didn't seem appropriate for the situation. She didn't even seem mildly concerned about her husband. When they went inside, the deputy found the door to the master bedroom locked, and nobody responded to his knock, so he had no choice but to break down the door to get to David. David was lying naked on the bed, on his side, with bloody vomit pooled below his head. The deputy checked for a pulse and didn't find one. On the table next to the bed were two glasses, one about half full of a bright green liquid, and the other one was empty, but there was a brown residue at the bottom. There was also a bottle of apricot brandy and a bottle of light cranberry juice. Laying on the floor next to the bed was a plastic jug of antifreeze. As detectives arrived and investigated the scene, some quickly started noting that it looked like an apparent suicide. As they searched the house, one investigator noticed that the antifreeze bottle was sitting on top of vomit that had clearly come over the side of the bed and splattered around the area, but there was no splatter on the bottle, so it would have had to been put there after. They also found a loaded shotgun under the bed and wondered why David wouldn't have used that to commit suicide. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many.
1: As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah. You live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over
2: let's have a look at today's lineup there's a strong Dunn stores influence from top to bottom starting with selected boxes of bottled beer and cider like heineken and Bulmers, from just 18 euro 72 cent half price pringles are a very welcome inclusion indeed 10 or 50 grocery vouchers doing their bit at the till as usual all that's left to do now is enjoy the football Dunn stores always better value terms and conditions apply voucher can be used on next grocery shop of 50 euro or more voucher excludes alcohol please drink sensibly
4: antifreeze is not a pleasant way to go. The main ingredient at antifreeze is ethylene glycol, and it's used as an antifreeze because it has a low freezing point. It's similar to alcohol, which is ethanol, but it affects the body much differently. When you ingest alcohol, your body metabolizes it, and it can work its way through your system without damaging cells. Long-term alcohol abuse is a different story, but just one drink of alcohol can be consumed pretty harmlessly. Ethylene glycol, on the other hand, absorbs into the body quickly and then crystallizes. These crystals affect the nervous system, metabolic process, and the kidneys. Even the smallest amount can cause intoxication, drowsiness, and lead to a coma. It takes very little to cause kidney failure, brain damage, and death. For an 80-kilogram or 175-pound adult, only 16 milliliters of a 50-50 mixed antifreeze can be toxic. That's only three teaspoons. It only takes 224 milliliters to be fatal. That's about a cup. Once in your system, your body slowly starts shutting down. You die of multiple organ failure while being in constant pain and continuously vomiting for anywhere between 24 and 72 hours, depending on the dosage. He chose that over a shotgun? Maybe, but it seems unlikely. While searching the home, one of the investigators noticed a turkey baster in the garbage can. It looked brand new. There wasn't any wear on it, and it seemed unusual that someone would throw it away. There were some tiny droplets inside the baster, so it was clear that there had been liquid in it at some point. It was collected and taken back to the crime lab with the other evidence. Stacy and the girls were taken to the police station to make a statement. There, Detective Lashinsky took down an eight-page statement from Stacy. The detective, who had taken many statements, said that this was by far the most detailed. Stacy told her everywhere she went, what people ate, that she ran into the convenience store to buy cigarettes and what brand they were. She also told the detective that she thinks that David got the idea about the antifreeze from an episode of 48 Hours they had seen a month earlier. The episode was about a woman who killed two husbands by putting antifreeze in their green jello. Producers of 48 Hours would later say that they never had an episode that featured that story. Stacy claimed that after she had opened the door and David yelled at her, she was afraid to be in the house, so she went to a friend's house. She offered more information to support suicide by telling the detective that the HVAC business was having financial trouble. Ashley and Bree were in a different interview room telling another detective what they remembered. It didn't necessarily back up their mother's story, but it also didn't call anything in her story into question. Detective Dominic Spinelli became the lead investigator on the scene and he was one of the investigators who was very hesitant to rule this a suicide. There were too many unanswered questions and as the evidence was processed, only more would arise. The glass half full of antifreeze found on the bedside table was too clean. It looked like it had come straight out of the dishwasher. How did someone who was that sick, sweating and vomiting, how did they drink from this glass and not get a mark on it? The glass had three fingerprints on it, all belonging to Stacy. Of course, that could be explained by the fact that she lived there and touched the glasses all the time. The other glass that was on the table had no fingerprints on it. The turkey baster was also free from prints, but the inside tested positive for antifreeze and David's DNA was found on the tip. Someone had used the turkey baster to force-feed David antifreeze. The biggest question became, why weren't David's fingerprints on anything? He used two glasses, handled the antifreeze bottle, but didn't get his fingerprints on anything? The blood sample taken from David showed very little alcohol or antifreeze. If he had been drinking all weekend and then taken the antifreeze at the end, like Stacy's story, the results would be much different. Then they looked at the phone records and found that Stacy had only called her house once on Monday. She told Detective Lashinsky that she called multiple times, but they checked her cell phone and her work phone, and there was only one call made to her house that day, just before she called 911. Why did she lie about that? It was revealed that Stacy had possession of David's will, and that it said that all of his assets went to her, and almost nothing went to his own son, David Jr. On top of that, it said that if Stacy died too, everything would go to Ashley and Bree. The two kids he didn't get along with? Not his own son? His ex-wife Janice knew something was wrong. She contacted Detective Spinoli and told him that David would never commit suicide and he would definitely never cut his son out of his will. Stacy inherited David's estate, which included the sale of David's business plus almost $50,000 from life insurance. Janice still had a copy of David's will from when they were married and she found a bunch of forms that David had signed which she gave to police for comparison. They were able to prove that the will had been forged and the witnesses to the signatures were actually Stacy's friends. Stacy would eventually confess to forging the will before her trial began. Detectives decided to dig deeper into Stacy's past and thought it would be a good idea to talk to her first husband, Michael Wallace. That's when they discovered that Mike was not only dead, he was buried right next to David in the same cemetery, like Stacy was displaying trophies. After talking to Mike's family and discovering that Stacy refused an autopsy, they were able to get a warrant to exhume his body and have an autopsy performed. Guess what they found in Mike's system? You'll never believe it. Antifreeze crystals. They got copies of his medical records, and at the time of his death, Stacy had told the doctor that Mike had a lot of medical issues. Based on his medical records, that wasn't true at all. He had a hernia once, and that was about it. There was something else found on Mike's body, though. Rat poison. It seemed as though Mike was slowly poisoned with antifreeze, but then the killer got impatient and shoved rat poison into his mouth. Could this be because Mike was planning to go to the hospital and the killer had to finish him off quickly? Stacy was brought back to the police station for questioning, where Detective Spinelli asked her again how many times she called her house on Monday. Again, she said several times. When he informed her that her phone record said she only called once, she claimed that the other calls were from her cell phone. He informed her that they also checked those records. Guess what, Stacy? When we say we check phone records, we check all of the phone records. Then the detective showed her a picture of the bedside table and asked her which glass she touched in the bedroom. She pointed to the empty glass and said, quote, Well, I poured the antifreeze, I mean, I poured the cranberry juice into this glass. End quote. Was that a little Freudian slip there? The prosecutor had to reenact what she had said during the trial.
3: I said, this is, are you going to continue? This is the glass, type or the antifree, I mean, cranberry juice.
0: Did Detective Schinelli confront you and say, whoa, you just said antifree? No. He just kept on asking you questions.
3: Um, no, I believe at that time the interview was terminated.
4: By this time, investigators had wiretapped Stacy's home and cell phone. After going by the cemetery and confirming that Mike's grave was dug up, Stacy began calling everyone she knew, claiming that she was scared and that she didn't believe they found antifreeze in Mike's system. The police were closing in on Stacy Castor, and she needed to come up with a plan to get the heat off her. What she needed was a scapegoat, and she quickly figured out what she could do to save her own ass, and it would only cost her one more life. On September 14, 2007, Stacy made her third call to 911 to report someone in her house needed medical attention. Bree had gotten up early to check on her sister. Ashley had been drinking with her mom the day before. She had gone into her room to take a nap at about 1.30pm and Bree hadn't seen her since. She wanted to make sure Ashley was okay, but as soon as she saw her sister, she knew that she wasn't. Ashley was on her bed, eyes open, mouth open, and not responding to Bree. When Stacy heard Bree screaming, she ran downstairs and called 911. She told the operator that she thought her daughter took some pills. Why Stacy would have made that assumption is anyone's guess. But while she was on the phone, Ashley started throwing up. Stacy told the operator that Ashley had taken Ambien and drank an entire bottle of vodka. During the commotion, Bree noticed a piece of paper folded in half sitting near the head of the bed. Bree said she hadn't seen the paper when she first went into the room, but when she left and then re-entered the room, it was like it had suddenly appeared. She picked it up and started reading it. Stacy grabbed the paper and told the operator that Ashley had left a note. It must have been a suicide note. Ashley was rushed to the hospital, where her heartbeat was racing at 170 to 190 beats per minute. As the doctors worked to stabilize the girl and detox her system, Sergeant Michael Norton was leaning over her, asking her what she took, but she couldn't answer. Eventually, after the doctors were finished, Ashley came to and immediately asked, quote, Was I in a car accident? End quote. Sergeant Norton informed Ashley that she had been found unconscious, with a typed note saying she had killed her father and stepfather and committed suicide. The sergeant said she looked at him like he was out of his mind. She was adamant that she had not typed a suicide note, had not killed anybody, and had not taken any pills. Ashley said in a later interview that she almost immediately knew that her mother had tried to kill her. Ashley told Norton that two days ago she was stressed about her father's body being exhumed, and Stacy suggested they get drunk. She was 19 years old at the time and thought it was rad that her mom was offering her alcohol. That evening, which would have been September 12th, she had some drinks with her mom, got pretty drunk, and went to bed. Even though she was tired and hungover from the night of drinking, she got up the next day and went to her early morning classes. When she got home sometime around noon, Stacy suggested another round of drinks. Ashley agreed, but this time the drink her mom gave her tasted terrible. Stacy shrugged it off, saying it probably had too much vodka, and told her to drink it through a straw with the straw closer to the back of her mouth so she wouldn't taste it so much. After consuming the drink, she became sleepy and went to her room to take a nap. The next thing she knew, she was waking up in the hospital. At 4 p.m. that same day, Stacy was arrested and charged with the murder of David Castor and the attempted murder of Ashley Wallace. Stacy would maintain her innocence and never once admitted to her guilt. From this point on, for the rest of her life, Stacy would defend herself by claiming that Ashley had killed Mike, her own father, when she was twelve years old, then David, her stepfather, when she was seventeen then wrote a confession letter and attempted to kill herself, and when she failed, she denied ever writing the note or attempting suicide, instead allowing her mother to be arrested and convicted for the crime she had committed. Stacy wanted people to believe that Ashley, a 12-year-old girl, slowly poisoned her own father with antifreeze. Forget the fact that a 12-year-old probably has no idea you can poison someone with antifreeze. Then she completely got away with it. She committed the perfect murder. And why? Because her dad showed favoritism towards Brie. And if Ashley murdered David, why did Stacy work so hard to make it seem like David was suicidal? She talked about her being afraid he was going to hurt himself. He may have had something in his drink, telling her if she left she'd be sorry, and that the business was having financial problems. A look at the business showed no financial problems, and David's family members said he never seemed suicidal. During the trial, the prosecutor wanted to know if Ashley had shown any signs that she was emotionally disturbed leading up to Michael's death.
0: You think she killed Michael? Yes. And it wasn't just—I came home, I lost my temper, I hit him with a, a frying pan, and oh my God, he's dead. This was a long-time periodic poisoning of her own father, correct? Objection, yes, Judge. Yes. Overruled. Correct?
3: Uh, yes.
0: And then we've heard medical testimony that apparently the killer wasn't satisfied with the progress they were making, so they jammed some rat poison down the guy's throat. Correct? That's not the testimony. I'll overrule it. Correct? Um,
3: I believe that's what they said, not in those words, but yes.
0: Okay. So that person has got to be seriously, seriously ill, mentally ill in your opinion. Yes. At 12 years old, right?
3: She was 12, yes.
0: Now, tell the jury what signs you saw of this aberrant, serious, psychotic mental illness.
3: I didn't use those words, but there was a change in Ashley when her father died. She was-
0: no, 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 no. no. <laughs> she didn't get psychotic after she killed him. She had to be psychotic before she killed him. What signs did you see of that mental illness?
4: None. Nope, she was a perfectly normal kid and then suddenly just decided to slowly poison her father to death. They presented all of the evidence that had been uncovered in the years leading up to the trial. Outside of the evidence that pointed to Stacy and the fact that Ashley's fingerprints weren't found anywhere that would point to her poisoning David or attempting suicide, the bulk of the case became a battle between Stacy and Ashley. The only way that Stacy could not be the killer was if Ashley was the killer. The reason being, Whoever wrote the suicide note had to be the killer. This is what the suicide note said. Just so you know, there's not a single punctuation mark in this entire thing.
1: Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell
2: Did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for €5. Euro. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just €12. Euro. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Dunn stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abused on like next grocery shop of €50 euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly.
4: Mommy, when you read the letter, just remember I love you, and everything I did is because I love you. I'm sorry all of this is happening to you, but now everyone is going to know what really happened, and they know it wasn't you, it was me. None was ever supposed to know about Daddy. I told you when Daddy died it was all my fault, and it was Daddy was doing things you never knew about. He was drinking when he was at Pick and Pull House, and at Lisa's house, he was smoking pot again, and I saw him, he was mean to you and me, he only ever loved Bree. I couldn't let him do those things to you anymore. You think I don't remember how things were, but I do, and I didn't want to ever live like that anymore, it wasn't fair to you or me, Daddy wasn't going to be good to you or be ever only Brie." I couldn't stand it anymore. The cops said there was antifree in Daddy's body, but did they tell anyone about the rat poison too? When I got home from school that day, I knew what was going on. Daddy was barely breathing. I knew he was going to die. That's why I didn't call you for help or anyone else. I wanted to make sure he couldn't be mean to you or me anymore. He died before I went to pick Bree up from school. I watched him and I knew he couldn't hurt you anymore, then we were happy for a while, just the three of us. And then you married David and he was mean to you and he was mean to all of us, meaner than daddy. And I knew you loved him like you loved daddy, and I knew you were going to let him treat you like he did. And you wouldn't leave, it wasn't fair, mommy. He didn't love you or me or Bree. I never thought anyone would miss David, none. But you loved him. It was harder than with Daddy because you were always home or with him. But it did it. I made sure he would never hurt you anymore. To that Friday when David came home so you could go to the post office is when I first did it. It was easy. I asked him if he wanted something to drink and I put the antifree in his glass with some soda. He drank two whole glasses. That was it. Only it took longer for David than with Daddy once I put the free in Daddy's Gatorade. It only took a day or so. And that's when he died, when you were sleeping on the couch after David locked himself in the room. I got the extra key because I knew where he hid it, and I put stuff in the room. I tried to get him to drink some of that booze with the dropper thing, but he was gout of it, and wouldn't I pour the antifree in the glass and on the floor and left the bottle in the room, and then I put the gloves back in the kitchen and got ready for work. You never knew, and now all of these cops are saying all of this stuff about you to everyone. You know and love, Mommy, it's just not fair when you told me they dug Daddy up. I knew what was going to happen. None was ever supposed to know, Mommy, and now they do, and they think that you did it, but you didn't. It was me. When the cops came to my school today, I thought they had figured it out, and I was going to jail, but they didn't take me, Mommy. I can't live like this and watch what they're doing to you, not anymore, but I can't go to jail for the rest of my life. I can't put you through that. I did the only thing I could to help you, Mommy. I know you hate me for doing what I did, but Mommy, remember I love you more than anything, and I did it for you, and for us. Please forgive me, Mommy. Someday, when all of this is over, please forgive me. Make sure to take care of Bree. She is all that you have left now. Remember how happy we all were together, and you will be happy again. I promise you, Mommy. Tell Matt I love him, and I'm sorry. Tell Bree to be a good girl for you, and I love her now too. Please don't hate me. Remember, I love you. Ashley. The reason the letter is proof that whoever wrote it is the killer is because they mentioned giving Mike rat poison. When authorities exhumed Mike's body, they did find antifreeze in his system, but they also found rat poison. That information was never released by the police, so whoever wrote the letter had to have been the killer. Then the letter mentions that Ashley poisoned David while Stacy went to the post office. One of the questions authorities had for Stacy was exactly when Ashley would have had time to poison her stepdad. Now she claimed that she had left on Friday to go to the post office, but she also said that she went there to mail a certified letter. The entire point of a certified letter is so it can be tracked, and there's no record that a certified letter was mailed by Stacy that day. Then there's the fact that the word antifreeze is only written as antifree. The prosecution argued that Stacy thought it was called antifree and pointed out that when she slipped up during her interrogation, she said antifree, but I think she just didn't finish the word because she caught herself. I think she wrote the letter trying to make it seem dumbed down. There are a lot of misspellings and like I said before, no punctuation. I think she believes it will make it look like it was written by a younger person. Ashley brought this up during her impact statement during sentencing.
5: I hate how she tried to make me look stupid in that note that she wrote. I've tried so hard to make something of myself. I have a three nine GPA and still she tried to make me look stupid.
4: Ashley was in college at the time, and though it wasn't Yale or Harvard, she still should have been expected to write better than that. Also, Ashley's fingerprints were not on the letter, but Stacy's were. So Ashley printed out the letter, folded it, and took it into her bedroom without leaving a single print on it. The prosecutor also pointed out that at the end of the note, it said, It was hard, but it did it. In a letter that Stacy had written to a friend, she wrote, I'm going to stay right here and prove that it didn't do it. It seemed as if Stacy had a habit of writing it when she meant I. It also doesn't help that this letter is written like a cartoon villain pointing out all of the evidence of their crime. Mommy, now they think you did it, but you didn't. It was me. Who would write that? It just seems so obvious that it's written to take suspicion off of Stacy. The investigators had also looked at Stacy's computer and found even more evidence that the letter was written by her. First, they found the letter had been written on Stacy's computer, which was normally located in the living room. They also found two drafts of the letter that had been written the previous day and deleted. Unfortunately, many people don't realize that deleting something doesn't actually remove it from your hard drive. It just marks the file as okay to be overwritten, but the file's still there until that happens. They also found that the printer logged the last time anything had been printed out as 9.30pm on September 12th. The letter mentions that the police came to Stacy's school, which happened at around 840 that morning. So the letter would have to have been written sometime between 8.40 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. on September 12th.
0: How many times on September 12th, 2007, was Ashley on the computer?
4: I can't answer that. I don't know.
0: Why don't you know? You were there with her. Did you see her on the computer that day?
3: I didn't sit in the living room the entire day. I was doing other things in other parts of the house. I can't tell you. She wasn't home
0: from 8 a.m. until you picked her up at school, was she?
3: No, that's correct.
0: Okay. So Ashley Wallace was not on that computer from 8 a.m. until 3.15 p.m. You say that on your oath. Yes. Then from 3.15 p.m., when you picked her up, where did you go? Uh,
3: we went to Syracuse.
0: When's the next time you came home?
3: <coughs> um, 7 o'clock, maybe. 7 p.m.? I think around 7, Yes.
0: Was Ashley with you? Yes, she was. This is when you started drinking the Smirnoff? Uh,
3: That was later, but after 7 we were all home together. Other
0: people were over? Yes. Your computer is right in the living room, easily accessible? Yes, sir. Did you see Ashley at any time from 7 to 9.30 on that computer?
3: Not that I can recall,
0: no. Not one single time?
3: Not that I can recall.
0: So tell me then, Mrs. Castor, how is it that she wrote... Exhibit 1 Judge. and printed it on your computer. I'll no Judge, how can she testify to something so Judge, something I'm, I'm going to Go ahead. You have to answer the question.
3: She could have done it at any time. When? I, didn't, I was not always in the living room paying attention to what the, was happening with the computer.
0: It's a 750-page, 750 750-word 750 note, Mrs. Castor. When did she write that note in that... 7 to 9.30 window that you've now given her. Did anyone know? Ashley, what are you doing? Oh, it's a suicide note. Let's go have a beer outside. Objection, you didn't see her do it, did you?
3: I do not recall seeing Ashley on a computer.
4: So Ashley was at school until Stacy picked her up at 3.15 p.m. Then they were out running errands and didn't get home until 7 p.m. By this time, Bree was also home, and her boyfriend was there with her. Stacy was home, and her boyfriend, a man named Michael Oxnar, who had been dating her since before David died, were also there. Nobody saw Ashley use the computer, let alone write a 700-word suicide note. On top of that, Stacy was on the phone at the computer from 8.30 to after 9.00. That's a pretty small window where Ashley could have written a lengthy suicide note and not be seen by anyone. It was painfully obvious to most people that Stacy had poisoned both of her husbands and then tried to kill and frame her daughter. The jury did take a little while to reach a verdict, but when they came back, they found Stacy guilty of both murder and attempted murder. During sentencing, Ashley made an impact statement.
5: I hate my mother for ruining so many people's lives. I don't even know why she did it. What gave her the right to play God with people? And I hate her for having me be the one that found my dad. Just like her for having Brie found me. I never knew what hate was until now. Even though I do hate her, I still love her at the same time. That bothers me. It's so confusing. How can you hate someone and love them at the same time? I just wish that she would say sorry for everything she did, including all the lies. And though, and I, and though, I feel bad for her today as she sits there by all by herself. She's the one that did this to herself, and nothing bothers her.
4: Her own mother tried to murder her and use her as a scapegoat for her crimes, and she just sat there, cold and emotionless. Oh, but right, Stacy is actually mad because her mastermind killer daughter is letting her take the fall for her murders. Sure. The judge said that he had never seen a parent try to murder their own child in an attempt to set that child up for a crime they themselves committed. He said that Stacy was in a class all by herself. She was sentenced to 25 years to life for the murder of David Castor and another 25 years for the attempted murder of Ashley Wallace. For forging the will, she was sentenced to one and a third to four years. The sentences were to run consecutively, and it would have made her eligible for parole after 51 years, just before her 88th birthday, but she would never make it to that day. On June eleventh, two 2016, Stacy Castor was found dead in her cell. The medical examiner ruled it a heart attack. But was it? Maybe Ashley actually poisoned her somehow inside the prison since she's such a cold-blooded murderer. Mwahahahaha. No, it was a heart attack. After the trial, family members notified police of their suspicion that Stacy may have murdered her own father. In 2002, Gerald Daniels got sick and was hospitalized with a lung problem. He was actually getting better and was scheduled to be released, but the day after Stacy visited him, he suddenly died. One of the family members said they saw her go into his room with a soda for her father to drink, but he noticed that it was already opened. Stacy was the executor of his estate, but it's not clear how much she may have gained from his death. She had his body cremated, so it's impossible to investigate now, but an autopsy was performed and the medical examiner ruled the death natural. Though, since he was an elderly man, already in the hospital, the M.E. might not have had reason to dig deep during the autopsy. David Castor Jr. petitioned the court for permission to move his father's body from where Stacy had buried him, right beside Mike Wallace and her father, and it was granted. Now, David Sr. rests near his own family.
1: Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Paid for by NHTSA.
2: Let's have a look at today's lineup. There's a strong Dunn Store's influence from top to bottom, starting with selected boxes of bottled beer and cider like Heineken and Bulmer's from just €18.72. Half price Pringles are a very welcome inclusion indeed. 10 or 50 grocery vouchers doing their bit at the till as usual. All that's left to do now is enjoy the football. Done stores. Always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly.
4: If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to hotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harm in yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and we'll talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence?
1: That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA.
2: Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's You Know What. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil, and Campus Oil are now certa delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see surtaireland.ie Did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for €5. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just €12. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Dunn stores make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Vouching excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly.
0: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at choppacasino.com.